This show is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable is part spreadsheet, part database, and all amazing. The thing with Airtable is that it is both powerful and flexible. Take maintaining an editorial calendar. You need to manage an entire editorial process with tight deadlines and lots of moving parts. Um, it gets complicated very quickly. With Airtable, you can get organized in your way. That's why places like Group 9, BuzzFeed, and Time all use Airtable. Airtable is flexible enough to adapt to your process, but also powerful enough to keep everything and everyone on schedule. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday today to get $50 in free credits. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. On today's episode, we are bringing you a special live session that we just held for Digiday Plus members at the Dot Dash offices. It's a little bit of a change from our normal uh, podcast. In this one, I quiz Dot Dash CEO Neil Vogel and Bustle CEO and founder Brian Goldberg on a range of topics. From the duopoly to publishers' relationships with platforms to the pivot to paid to Brian's theory that the New York Times ad business is in decline because it has become too left-wing. These are all hot-button issues that we touch on. Um, We made a deal that Neil and Brian both would disagree with each other, and for the most part, they did. It was a fun session. Hope you enjoy it. Before we start, I want to have opening statements. Less than a minute. Give me one thing that you know to be true about digital media that most people do not believe to be true. Neil. The narrative that publishing and digital media is fundamentally broken is false. What you're seeing right now um, is the the result of terrible decisions that were made by people that raised too much money and chased the wrong things 18 months and two years ago. And people who did not do that now are doing great. Yeah, less than a minute. Brian, you can take that I'm time. Gonna t- I'm going to take his 40 seconds. Um, if so, so right now the narrative is that everything is shitty. And if you look at the results of the Mashable sale, which was a, a mitigated disaster and a couple of other terrible headlines, you'd think 2017 was a bad year and 2018 is not much better. Um, part of it is because of what Neil described, bad decisions by big venture-backed media companies. A bigger reason why 2017 and 2018 and probably 2019 are terrible times to try to sell a digital media company is because the big, big buyers of media companies like Discovery and Time Warner and Sinclair and Disney and several others are all tied up in M&A, so they couldn't buy anything even if they wanted to. So if you are a digital media company, like a Mashable, or someone else who's going out there trying to sell right now, there is no one to buy you. It's a tough situation. But in 2019, after these guys all get through the worst and most painful consolidation the world has ever seen, they will be ravenously hungry to buy digital media companies, and they will pay significant premiums for them. No one agrees with me, but I am right about this. Yes. (laughs) An optimistic take. Yes. Things are terrible, but they're going to get better. Okay, let's start. Neil. Facebook needs publishers to keep people on Facebook. False. Okay. Facebook doesn't give a shit about publishers. Facebook is in the business of Facebook. And compare Facebook to Google if you're a publisher. If you look at Google and you're a publisher, it is very clear what Google wants to do. Someone puts in a query or a question or a statement, and they, they want the best answer. And if you're a publisher that helps give that best answer, you'll be fine. Google's objective is super clear. 
If you're Facebook, your objective is completely unclear and getting less clear by the day and muddled. What shows up in that feed is at the whim of like some dude named Chris Cox or some other random person or some other data thing and trust they violated. Facebook is in the business of doing what is best for Facebook. They don't care about you. They shouldn't care about you. And any publisher, and it goes back to the bad decision thing, any publisher who is mad at Facebook for lying to them or making them do something they didn't want or hiring 800 people to make off-platform videos run on Facebook, it's their own fault. That was it. Okay, good. But, but, so, yeah. Brian, before, let me just go for one counter. I know I'm like jumping down on you. Google has been known to screw publishers repeatedly through its history. Ask Yelp what it's like to be dependent on Google. So what I would say about what, what Google is trying to do in the long term, I believe, is give the best answer to its query. We were formerly about.com. Nobody got effed worse than they did. Like, and they, frankly, they deserved it. They did a bad, they had great content, but they did bad things for consumers. We were not in a space that maybe Google wanted to be directly competitive in, so there's a whole host of other issues if you're Yelp. But Google generally is going to do what's in the best interest of Google. If you have a good, like, a bunch of shit that we write about. They now put the answer on the page for you already. That's not great for us. But generally, if you help them solve their problem, you know what they're trying to do. Okay. okay. Brian. All right. So I, I will give my Facebook piece. So Facebook's stock right now is near an all-time high. It's not an all-time high, but it's still quite high. Stock price is often a lagging indicator, as we econ majors say, meaning that it it's, doesn't mean that Facebook's the best it's ever been. I would argue that the best Facebook has ever been as a company was around 2014, 2015. That was a window in time in which people genuinely love Facebook, people of all ages enjoyed it, and I believe, as much as I am critical of how they've run their company recently, I believe that BuzzFeed was, if not impactful, at least representative of why people liked Facebook in 2015. Because in 2015, Facebook, like Instagram today, was an enjoyable, fun, lighthearted experience that was a great and wistful place to waste 20 minutes of your time or more. That is no longer the case. Why? And I hate to blame things on Donald Trump, but I really do think that because of the election and the news and the general bad blood in the political climate, it made Facebook a very unenjoyable or at the very least a very combative place to be where me, for example, my dad and I argue on Facebook all the time in front of all my employees, which is really a horrible thing to do. Like, <laughs> like I don't know what my poor employees are thinking. Like, like going to see like my dad and I like yelling each other on Facebook about some foreign policy nuance involving <laughs> like, you know, Iran's policy. But it became a very unhappy place. And BuzzFeed and content creators like it made Facebook a fun, easy place to share content that was lighthearted. 21 signs you're a procrastinator. 18 things people from New Hampshire will never get over. Things like that. <laughs> people like that. And so I don't think Facebook, to answer the question, it does need content. It needs content people like. And unfortunately, we are in a window in which basically everything worth talking about is very unpleasant mm -hmm. and combative and divisive. So I don't think it's an issue about content specifically. I think it's about the nature of content. And Facebook is proving very craven in their ability to just say that and to push real news, quote unquote, out and push fun, lighthearted lifestyle content yes. in. Facebook would be totally fine if they never put another article from any publisher on Facebook. Right. Okay, we're going to have to move on. Although, so that is wrong. Gretchen from Little Things is here. <laughs> Luckily, they needed that kind of feel-good content, um, but and they still sort of killed Little Things. <laughs> okay. Brian, you're going to like this one. Mashable was not the last. More fire sales are to come in digital media. So, so that's a targeted question. 
and, and one that may or may not be governed by certain I'm starting by the by, cer the by, by certain by certain NDAs. So I will I will uh, watch myself on this one. Um, Mashable made a series of very very poor mistakes. Uh, here's what happened to Mashable now that months have passed since the acquisition. Mashable decided a year and a half ago or so they wanted to sell the company. And they didn't want to sell themselves as a media company. They wanted to sell themselves as a technology company because technology companies are sexier and command greater multiples. And they hired a bunch of engineers and data scientists to build some sort of newfangled Death Star of a data analytics platform for social signals, blah, 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 blah. And they thought that they could sell that to a company like Viacom or ProSieben or someone like that more easily than they could sell a standalone quality media property. That was their thesis. Unfortunately for them, the problem with that thesis is that's a very expensive lie to perpetuate because dozens of engineers and data analysts cost a lot of money to the tune of a very unhealthy, a penal that may be unhealthy. Um, that is my sense of what they did, just knowing the composition of their, of their company. I think that they made a mistake by hiring up a bunch of engineers, positioning themselves as a technology company, and telling what was ultimately not an ideal narrative to the market. Um, I think that if they had said who they really were, a great technology media brand that at least at one point had a huge following and was in a position to turn themselves around and drive significant advertising revenue in a quality advertising category, tech they would have been just fine. I also think they should have aborted their M&A process and not sold the company and made some tough decisions, which I don't think uh, they, they wanted to make. Mm -hmm. But I think it was a perfect storm of things gone wrong. It was an example of why you've got to be the company you actually are and not try to be something else, which we've seen a lot of in media, since media companies often don't want to admit they're media companies. And I think they paid a heavy price so for it. So is that a Mashable story or a larger thing about the market? It sounds like you're saying this yeah. is mostly just... We have seen this again and again. We saw it years ago when, and this is not a criticism of Vox, but years ago Vox was telling a narrative about Chorus, their technology, their content management system. They were under tremendous pressure to position themselves as, quote unquote, not a media company, partly because they have a lot of tech investors. Any in media company. company that says a technology company, find a way to short that company. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, to me, I understand why people do it, so I'm not going to say it's an unforgivable thing to do. It's just people are under pressure. Media companies are under pressure to pretend they're not media companies. Resist that pressure. I don't blame them because it is intense pressure, often from VCs who want to pretend they're not in media. Resist that pressure. Media is a good business. It's a 300 billion, advertises a $300 billion global business. It's a good business to be in if you are good at it. Acknowledge who you I'm are, totally love it, embrace it, be it, and be good at it. Here's what I disagree. The people that are under pressure to be technology companies are the narrow band of media companies that have venture funding and are expecting venture returns. Media, the kind of media that we do the sales ad, is traditionally and historically not a venture-backed business. You don't get venture-backed returns. It's a private equity-backed business. It is that kind of return. I'll give a less nuanced answer to this, and I will say yes, like absolute yes. Um, so we're not... Brian, we're part of IEC, Barry Diller, he builds companies, he buys businesses and when they do well, we buy lots of more businesses. We are looking at lots of businesses to buy. We are going to be very aggressive. We are right now doing something that we've named, this is a weird sports country, we call it hanging around the hoop. We're doing really well. Our revenue has doubled in the last 24 months. We are really profitable and our margins look like a media company in the 80s looked like. 20, 25% EBITDA margins on real revenue and real growth and we are watching everybody who 
public companies that got together and merged, and that's eh, not working out so well. Like guys that maybe used too much Outbrain and Taboola and never forget how to make money, and they're doing terrible things to the users. So that's not really working out so well. A lot of these venture back guys that, as Brian said, tried to be something else, or frankly, just it's just not working. Like you, you can't. A lot of these guys have like they had an incredible business at sixty million dollars and a terrible business at one hundred and twenty million dollars of revenue. So it's not meant to be that big. That's exactly what we're looking for, and. There are more people in the landscape that will be in this situation than will be not in the situation in the next 24 months. Okay, we got to move on. We'll be right back after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Teamwork has never been more critical, and that's hard to pull off in a fast-changing environment like today's. Enter Airtable. This is a tool that can fit your process, but it's also powerful enough that it keeps everyone on the same page. Time, for instance, uses Airtable to manage its entire creative process from the original idea to the content creation to getting that content out the door. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Head to Airtable.com slash Digiday to receive $50 in free credits. Thank you, Airtable. Now back to the episode. Neil. Relying on Google is just as dumb as relying on Facebook. I hope not, or we're in deep trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, again, I said it, I answered this before. Google, what they want is very predictable. If you can help them answer queries, you are fine. If you can't, you won't be fine. If you try and game Google in any way, it might work for a period of time, but then you will be finished. And there, his, the, the side of the road is littered with dead media companies who have tried that. So I think, uh, I think it is very different. What, That's I, on the distribution side. On the monetization side, no problem. Oh, the monetization side, we don't rely on Facebook. On the monetization side, you are generally relying on Google in some way. If, if you do anything programmatically, you're relying on Google. Google owns the entire ad stack up and down. Google is a monopoly in every part of our business. So relying on Google is a state of affairs. It's not a choice. So it's just, it is what it is. It would be awesome if there was someone else who helped. I think Amazon is going to be a very big help. They're being very, very aggressive, programmatically very aggressive. That's going to help. Uh, dumb? I don't know. We don't have a choice. No choice. Brian, like 80% of your traffic's from Google, right? Yeah, not 80%. Uh, it's our lo single largest source by far. I mean, look, here's what I like to say about media companies like mine. Google is a monopoly. He's right, it's a monopoly. It's a gigantic, powerful empire. It's like the Roman Empire. And we are vassals, or what are, what are we? Dukes, maybe, earls. Barely. Maybe like Barely. barons, or Barely. what's below a baron, like a count. But you know what? <laughs> All things considered, that's a pretty good thing to be. I'll take Duke or Earl or Baron. And I think that if you were to be born in, in Europe in the 16th century, and someone said, hey, here's the deal. You can either be born a Duke or an Earl, or just roll your dice and you could end up a peasant. You're like, hey, you know what? I, I think I'm going to take Duke. <laughs> that's what we are. And that's okay. We are building great businesses. It's okay to be a Duke in their empire. That is what we are. We have a role. We have our place. We create value. And maybe we're going to build companies worth a few billion dollars compared to Google's trillion dollar market cap. But so be it. What's I feel like that? we're peasants and that is the fear that drives us to say we're going to build the fastest sites. We're going to build the best content and the best answer to that topic. And the content's going to be young and fresh. We're going to have the best imagery and we're going to have less ads on our page than anybody else. If we weren't totally terrified of Google and respectful of users, maybe in a smaller font, that second answer, we probably, I'm not sure we would be doing that. So in a way, they're the rules of the road 
Mostly a benevolent dictator. Uh, dictator. I, 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 look, Google, Google doesn't need... Predictable dictator. Like yes. that, I would say. That's what I like in my dictator. Like a historic, <laughs> like a medieval king or a medieval em emperor, they don't need any particular duke or knight or sir, but they need the aggregate of all the media content creators to behave and stay in line and stay happy and in order for their empire to run smoothly. So I think that... Individually, does Neil do myself do? Does Jonah Preddy do, do the guys advice? Do any of these do the people in the New York Times? Do they? Do, does Google need any one of them? No, but the top thirty or forty publishers in aggregate do contribute to a good search experience. Yeah, they need ads on their search page. Yeah, it's super simple. They need the search page to be decent so they can put yeah. their ads on it and they can do fifty billion dollars of EBITDA on the only thing they've ever made money doing with yeah. all the noise they've made in their whole existence. Flying cars ain't going to do it for them. Okay. <laughs> all right. Baron Bryan, yes. the house of bustle. Yes. The duopoly should be broken up or at least severely regulated. So, so I am a believer in, in regulation. I, th I think the world itself right now is going through an existential crisis over one key question. Is, are we happier with monopolies, with Amazon lowering our prices and shipping us our products instantaneously? This is, these are nice things to have. No one's going to complain that your, your item arrives the same day in the mail from Amazon at an unbelievable price. That's pretty good to the consumer. Same thing with, with what Google can do, what, what Facebook can do. I mean, the, these half... I don't know, Facebook as much as Google? It's, uh, it's these a harder company, These companies, uh, Facebook does a lot of people. I mean, it helps you stay in touch with people you never would have stayed in touch with. Like, there are some benefits to Facebook. Um, it, you know, for Instagram, it's great for a million reasons, especially, you know, young people do love it. Like, these are great products. Here's the question. Are the conveniences that they provide... Do those outweigh what are blatantly, and by any standard, by any sort of Teddy Roosevelt standard, monopolistic behavior? And we are grappling with that right now. And you're going to have an American public who says, you know what? I know Amazon's a monopoly. I, I know it stifles competition. It stifles innovation. But damn it, I like when my cleaning products arrive two hours after I hit buy it now and don't have to input a credit card. That's so damn convenient. I want that. Does that outweigh the lack of competition? And I think that I think... The way things are going is Monopoly is going to win. I think that the people in America are not going to be willing to give up the conveniences that these four or five monopolistic companies bring them in order to foster a sense of competition until something really bad happens. Even when our government cared about these things, like monopolies, which they clearly don't right now, every single person that worked in government worked at one of these two places. It's, it was nothing was going to happen. And most people, like, I mean, these centers don't even have, they're not, none of the emails. Just, nothing is going to happen here. Yeah. Uh, the two points I would want to make is... Well, it's like, who's going to break up Google? Jeff nobody, Sessions. Nobody, nobody. Yeah. Like, the one, yeah. the one thing, the, uh, the only person who might do it is Amazon. So yeah. don't sleep on Amazon, right? It's the second or third largest search engine in the world right now. Um, and they're making a huge play into the whole ad tech stack. So I think that can do this. And two... Listen for the word utility and, and like public utility. And the, the, the drumbeat of Google is utility, Facebook is utility, is the only thing that terrifies them and will keep them from acting totally horribly. So if you want to provide a service to all of us, start telling everybody that you think Google is a public utility and watch them scramble and try and act like normal human beings. Because they do not want to be a regulated... Yeah. 
Utility. Zuckerberg used yeah. to describe them as utility. It's, yeah. uh, those get regulated. <laughs> yeah. But I will say this. Ironically, I think that if you were to, if, if we were to talk about the monopoly question, which of the four or five big tech companies is the most monopolistic in its characteristics is Amazon, no question asked. However, Amazon's leader is by far the smartest of the CEOs and the most politically astute and has taken a number of measures to help preemptively prevent regulation, including moving his new uh, massive office, we don't know where, except it's obviously going to be the Washington, D.C. metro area, and buying the largest paper in Washington, D.C. He is playing four-dimensional chess. Facebook is the least of the monopolies. Facebook is of the four or five big techniques, the one that is the least monopolistic, if we're to be honest, because it's the one that's the least critical to our everyday lives. It is the one most likely to be regulated because Mark Zuckerberg has, from an executional standpoint, made a lot of mistakes. And you can't blame him because he was CEO at age like 20 and, and you know you don't learn these things overnight. But I think that Zuckerberg's mishaps from an execution standpoint have made him the most vulnerable to regulation, even though he, his product is the least monopolistic. Okay. Neil, forget the New York Times. The pivot to paid will fail for most publishers. Uh, true, I think. I think there's a couple of like must-have properties. New York Times, Washington Post. Below that, I think everyone fits in the matrix of, can I expense it or am I really passionate about it? Okay. And there's a limited number of passionate about it things. I mean, there's probably a limited number of expensive things. But So I know what I subscribe to when I can expense it, and I know what I subscribe to... Um, that I'm passionate about, and that's a limited universe, and it is very hard to get in there. Like, there's not a lot of room for new people once people have habits established. I think it's going to be really hard, and you have to deliver. Like, for us, we'll never succeed with a paywall. I don't think we can ever do that, because our content is great. We spend a fortune on it. Like, we spend, we'll spend $15, $16 million a year on content this year, but if you want symptoms of diabetes or best colors to paint your kid's room, or how do I make my router faster? There are a lot of people that do a fairly good job of that on the internet now that don't charge anything. So the difference is for Vanity Fair, people love Vanity Fair, you'll pay for that. And it's also, I think some of the magazine stuff where you're used to subscribing, like the New Yorker, you'll pay for that. Vanity Fair, you'll pay for that. Vogue, you'll pay for that maybe. I think they have a, a different problem. But um, Digiday Plus, I'll pay for it because Mr. Diller's paying for it. Like the, the, um, <laughs> Tell but, him he can get him more. Exactly. Uh, but I think it's going to be really hard for publishers that don't have real connections and passionate audiences to do this. And even the ones that do, I think it's going to be really hard. I mean, you're rooting basically for Hearst to like put a paywall up for a lot of their women's so properties. Right? So that would that'd be great. I mean, look, I, what we're talking about the New York Times specifically, people who know me know I'm not the biggest fan of, of the New York Times editorially. I'm a little bit bigger fan of the business, but I think, the, I think they've made a mistake. And I'll tell you what that mistake is. They, in some of their recent earnings announcements, they have publicly stated, we are a subscription-first company. Advertising is a great source of revenue, but it's not quite the focus subscription is. I think that's a big mistake. I think that indeed... Well, the subscribers are growing. And there's no excuse. <laughs> by the way, there's no excuse for their ad business not performing. And I will tell you this. I know some of the sales people there. They have a great sales team. So it's not an execution problem. It's a product problem. And the problem with the New York Times right now, and it is a, product, it is a problem I'm calling out and they will live to regret, is that they are building essentially a subscriber echo chamber in which they have gotten some initial, the last couple of years, traction, especially around November of 2016, in which they have gotten hundreds of thousands of people of a, who are of a similar mindset, i.e. very, very anti-current administration, to pay a meaningful subscription rate to sign up. They're making millions of dollars 
from these subscribers. They're building this little echo chamber. And in building this echo chamber, they are, they are now creating content to foster and build and advance this echo chamber of people who feel the same way and are looking for the same content against the current administration. And that content is becoming more and more and more firebrand. That content is becoming more and more and more polarizing. You're slipping into it. Well, I'm going there, but, but I'm going there, and that kind of becoming more and more extreme. Extreme political content scares away advertisers. Oh, so you think that scared away advertisers? The beans for sure, doubling for down sure. on the Upper West Side. Uh, you, has... here, here's the thing: we all remember. No, I remember. Who do you think was advertising there before? The, there, <laughs> there was a there was a there was a day four or five years ago. I don't know if people. You probably don't remember. It, I do. There was I, the greatest ad I've ever seen was on the New York Times about three or four years ago. It was an Apple ad in which they did like a homepage takeover and they had two different creatives that had a story that intertwined. And it was like, it's hard to describe, but beautifully executed ad creative. The New York Times is one of the few digital publishers who really can get Apple and Coca-Cola, truly world-class brands to spend many, many millions in advertising. They are going to lose that because those brands simply don't want to be on a homepage in which so much of the content is so polarizing, so combative, so political, so firebrand, so extreme. And their content is extreme. Let's just face it, the New York Times is on the extreme left. And, and people say, oh my God, how can you say that, Brian? Oh, oh my God, goodness gracious. That's what it is, it's the extreme left. And, and it is going to piss off a lot of brands whose world headquarters are in Indiana or are in rural parts of Michigan or are in the South or are in the non-liberal parts of California. There are a lot of big Fortune 500 companies with big, big marketing budgets who are not going to like the nature of the content on the front page of the New York Times. I'm not saying if I agree or disagree with their content or their editorial. What I'm saying is it will chase away advertisers. The, the, the loss I'm describing from advertising will outweigh what they could gain from their paywall. Sorry about that to make a different point. Very quickly, very quickly. Okay, very quickly. So, we need to get Brian another rose. Uh, totally. Yeah. The, to so <laughs> I actually don't think the point is anybody's political point of view because we've seen it. It's not Fox News. It's not the New York Times. We're seeing this because okay. we don't do news. We don't do breaking news. We don't do political content. We do like the best way to cook dinner and games to play with your kids. There is a huge rotation away from anything that has Trump's name on it because it puts people in a crazy state of mind, yeah. pro yeah. or con. So we are seeing, a, like, this is not any strategy, it's just kind of luck for us, a huge pivot of these big advertisers, the CPG guys, the retail guys, coming to places like us because we are safe. And it's not we're safe because, like, we obviously don't have, like, weird ISIS beheadings and shit like that, but we're safe because we don't make people have an emotional reaction, pro or con, any of this stuff. It has nothing to do with whether someone's extreme or not. Advertisers just don't want it. So, Neil is right about that, but I will say that in the past, it hasn't been an issue. Now, it is an issue. So someone has to convince me something hasn't changed. Here's what changed. The New York Times content has become much, much, much more polarizing. Not to most people in this room who, I'm going to guess on average, are on the left or far progressive side, but to the tens of millions of consumers who do not live in San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Austin, Texas, etc. And major brands don't want to be part of that. And the New York Times has to defend the fact that they've not had a great advertising performance the last year and a half at a time when a lot of digital media companies have been growing very quickly. I'm, I'm uh, doing a podcast with Sebastian Tomich, and fantastic. I'm going to ask him he on is, this very he issue. Is a plus, and, and the fact that an A-plus person like him can't drive the results I'm talking about shows it is not a team or leadership you. issue. I, it is a core product issue. I will quote great. you on this. I'm certain about this. I'm <laughs> Ryan, certain about this. seamless transition <laughs> into a, a, just as polarizing of a topic, which is commerce.
Yes. Quick break to tell you about our Can Lions coverage. We are heading to the Riviera and we have a lot of things lined up. So sign up for our Digiday Can briefing, which will give you every day the highs, lows, and absurdities of the week. Uh, we're going to be publishing this Sunday until Friday. Um, you will also get invites if you so choose under GDPR, to various events that we are hosting uh, on the Riviera in Cannes, including a live recording of the Digiday podcast and also uh, one from Starting Out, our sister podcast that is hosted by Shreem Patak. So if you're there, please come and join us. Learn more at digiday.com slash digidaycan. Now back to the episode. So commerce will never be more than an incremental revenue stream for most. We always had to put yeah. most publishers because everyone was like, hey, what about Wirecutter? Yeah, what about uh, They're not a publisher. So, so, so first of all, <laughs> something different. So, so I'm going to give you an unsatisfying answer. I'm going to say you're right and you're wrong about this. Correct, it will be incremental revenue. It could be 10% of your revenue. It could be 15% of your revenue. For our particular company, for Bustle Digital Group, commerce will come in probably a little under 10% of our total revenue this year. Is that good? That's fantastic to, 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 to make, in our case, many millions of dollars that goes, for the most part, right to the bottom line. In a world where a 20% margin, margin is a really good margin, if you can do 10 to 12% lift from commerce, and that can flow almost entirely to your bottom line, that can be your entire margin or a large part of your margin. So, it, it, yes, you, the glass half empty take on this is, oh, it's only 10 to 12% revenue lift. That's not that much. Well, if you can make your ad-based business break even or around break even, then suddenly you're a pretty good business if you're adding ten or twelve percent margins to that. So it's it's and okay. The margins are great, yeah. so it doesn't matter that it's only ten or fifteen. No, it's it's a high margin business. If done correctly, it is a good business to your consumers and to your customers. In our particular case, so I can give my company's take on it. We recommend products that we think our consumers love. The math and the and the data shows that they do love these products. They buy them. At, with tremendous frequency, almost, I, I was skeptical when, when my team came to me and said, we want to do this. I didn't believe the numbers could be as good as their models indicated. The numbers have greatly surpassed what they had in their, in, in their projections. The revenue is absolutely real. It's a great, this is affiliate revenue, so it runs primarily through Amazon, a little bit of it through, through Walmart Jet. The, we have exceeded projections. It is real revenue. And for the e-commerce players, this is a great source of lead gen. So we, we should drive this year, my projection is around $100 million of transactions for Amazon. That, that's just one website that we own. That's meaningful. No, Jeff Bezos isn't going to gain or lose sleep over $100 million. But if you add up all the publishers, we're talking about billions of dollars of revenue. And you've got, and you've got to remember, when he does his earnings conference call, if he misses his revenue number by 1% or 2%, his stock could gain or plummet significantly. Um, this is fine, but like you, yeah. Brian's leaving out. There's two ways publishers can sell things. Brian's leaving out the number one advantage he has that he didn't say. There's two ways publishers. <laughs> Am I withholding something no, from just, our, our just, audience? There's, there's two ways you sell things. You can be two kinds of publishers can succeed at commerce. One, you have intent-driven traffic. You have people that come to you not to browse Kardashian pictures, but with a very specific purpose. And in solving that purpose involves buying something. My router's too slow. Oh, okay. I need a new router. Got it. Like that that's us. That's like people get a lot of traffic from search. 
Brian can sell traffic from search. People come to him wanting very specific things. That's why they can sell. The other way that you can sell is what was essentially like the old Gawker model, which is you have an audience you know and it's a deals business. Like wine glasses for $8. Boom, you sell a shit ton of wine glasses at a special price in a deal. That's the other way to do it. I don't think that there is or is going to be an in-between. We will, and some guys are going to get mad when we're saying this, we will across our brands, our five brands, um, in our tech brand and in our home brand, uh, our revenue percentage is a lot, uh, from commerce, affiliate fees, is a lot more than numbers you're suggesting here. It's big. It's like... What am I suggesting? 20, 20, what a 10%, 50%. It could be 20, 25%, 30% in different parts of the site. Because when you have a big tech site that gives tech advice, a big part of giving tech advice is what to buy. And if you can tell people what to buy in beautiful, comprehensive reviews, it can really work. We'll send to various retailers, we'll send four or $500 million worth of transactions off of our platform this year. Now, it's terrifying that more, a lot of that, a shit ton of that is Amazon, so they have a lot of like, control over us. But if you don't have an engaged audience where you can do deals that you know appeal to them, yeah, like like a bank. It's got to be intent, or it's got to be intent, or you're wasting your time. Okay, Let, we we gotta we gotta move oh, on to the okay. next one. Uh, Neil, I, we're gonna stick with you. Relying on display advertising for the majority of your revenue in 2018 is insane. No, people say that who are bad at display revenue. Yeah. Stupid. Uh, what is insane is in 2018. Um, doing what you want to do as a publisher and not what the market wants you to do. And what the market wants you to do is be very, very good at transacting all over the ad stack. They want you to, every marketer wants to be able to, we have, we have guys with seven figure advertising clients with a crooked number in front that we will never get an IO from because it's all PMPs and programmatic guaranteed. You have to be fantastically good and not scared of it and your sellers need to know how to use it. If you don't do that, you're crazy. If you go out and you're leading with a content studio as your sale, you're crazy. It's not going to work. If you have a great audience and you have really good data and not like we have a lot of moms, 18 to 30, like really good data of like what people do on your site and what they want, you will be fine. This is a great business. As Brian said before, billions and billions of dollars in advertising gets spent every year. Internet spending is going up. The, the duopoly is not getting all of it. That is an excuse by people who are not doing their job right. Like, um, I do not think it is insane. If it was insane, then I probably would be insane also because I should probably get a different job. But I think it's, uh, I don't think it's insane at all. Yeah, and, and, I, and, and I, what's insane is the number of people who suck at media who use this story to perpetuate why they're sucking. Agree. And it, it, it drives me crazy because, I, because I cannot, I've pitched a lot of venture capitalists in the last 14 years of doing this. And the number who've said to me, oh, and you guys, monetize through advertising i'm like yeah we do it's a 300 billion dollar business do you have a better one in mind but well like what's this other what's this other way to make money that's so much better than advertising if you're a digital a digital destination and 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 then they throw money at, at, at they throw money at reddit at like a two billion dollar valuation where we're no where no one will ever buy advertising ever and there's no way to possibly monetize reddit and it's a any vc who throws money at reddit is just money down the down the toilet and but 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 that's the appeal right is it, it can't make money so so it's awesome right um, <laughs> so not making money is very freeing yeah. you can go out oh. and say crazy stuff and like not be accountable to anybody it's, it's scalable it's, it's, it's scalable <laughs> infinitely scalable you get to sell you get to sell vision after vision every subsequent round it's like in our series a this was our vision to not make money in our series b we have a totally new amazing vision for not making money um if you have a publisher <laughs> that claims to do 100 million in revenue and in all the history of media since like 
the beginning of a newspaper and magazines, media margins have been somewhere between 15 and 30%. So if you do $100 million in revenue, you should make on the low end 15 or 20, on the high end like 30, maybe more if you're like a, a B2B magazine. And you have publishers in our space that lose $30 million on 100, which actually means they lose 50. And then they complain about this. Like, what are they doing? Like what? And it actually messes up the market for the rest of us because they do insane things because they don't have a regular P&L and they deliver things below cost and weird. The, the good news is the market's flushing these out now. So businesses that you'll see that are still doing well, and I know we're not supposed to disagree, but like Bustle and like us and like others. Are you like guys making others, money? We, we will be profitable this year. That is the projection. We, if we don't do it, you can punch me in November. <laughs> I don't know. If you keep working out, I'm not going to do that. There we go. Well, let me, but, I, but, but I want to answer. But Neil, I brought up the, the question. He goes, what are they doing? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're listening to their VCs too much. Exactly. And if, if you say, what mistake? You know, Jonah Party is a smart guy who's been very successful in the past. What mistake did he make at BuzzFeed? He listened to the VCs too much. And the VCs have every incentive. And I don't blame his VCs. He has world-class VCs. And, and I know some of them, they're smart guys. Their incentive is for him to burn cash so that they can be, he can be dependent on their cash, their future cash, and they can get great terms. And BuzzFeed's investors got fantastic terms on their last round of funding. So what, what are these guys 15% doing? of zero is still zero. Yeah, well, they, they will survive. They will be fine. BuzzFeed will be fine in the end. But the mistake is they listen too much to investors who are saying growth is all that matters. Don't get profitable. If you listen to VCs, to, that's great. Just don't let them totally change your course of action. They need to be your partners, not your instructors. Right. All right. Few publishers will profit from Snapchat. Pass. Pass. Now, this is yours. I have no opinion on Snapchat is that they, they have bottomed. It's been a humbling bottom for them. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it was, you know, it was all worth it as a learning experience. Um, I think they would have done some things differently. But I think we're at a point now where you do not want to give up on Snapchat. I think Snapchat is now at a point in which they realize that publishers can be very helpful to them for a number of reasons, but primarily because a lot of publishers like us have very strong sales forces in place. Snapchat could benefit at this particular moment where their revenue is being scrutinized by the public markets. The thing that will help Snapchat the most at this moment is incremental revenue from tapping into the sales forces of publishers. That is my opinion. And this is not a terribly high revenue company, Snapchat. Like, 10 or $20 million of revenue in a quarter will move the needle in Wall Street's opinion, that that is not tremendous scale right now. So if Snapchat is wise, in my opinion, what they will do is tap into the excellent sales forces that BuzzFeed and Bustle Digital Group and Group 9 and all these guys have built over the last few years because our sellers really know how to sell and really know how to sell multi-million dollar packages. I think they should partner with us and let us do a lot of that heavy lifting on the business side. I think that's Totally unrealistic. I don't think they're ever going to do that. But I, I just think well, they're, they're only they should, should they do it? Uh, it's not even worth debating. They're not going to. Okay. So, like, okay. I don't think they're going to. Well, it's not sure they, they, they the, ought to. Yeah. Maybe. I don't, yeah. I don't know. But the, the one thing Snapchat has that they've had from the beginning, and it could actually work for an intent-driven publisher like us, is they are curated stuff. They are not a platform. Everybody can't go up there and dump all of their things and share all of their things. Like, what they do with publishers and keep it curated is their chance. People really want curated. Platforms are a disaster. Like, Facebook proves every day what kind of a mess open platform is driven by an algorithm. They're curated by humans. There's real value in that. Again, like, that's been happening for hundreds of years. And for, for this to work, 
I think in the long term, these guys are very favorable to publishers, and they'll figure out the economics, which they've been a bit wiggly on. Um, who sells it? I don't. I actually I don't know, but I think it. I think this has a chance. Okay. Ad agencies, other than those who spend a lot of money with you, Neil, are mostly irrelevant. Uh, uh, so <laughs> you're not. I put in that. That was a last minute edit. Thank you. Thanks for the mostly irrelevant. <laughs> what I would say is, you're, you're not going to tell the people who are the source of a fair amount of your revenue that they're irrelevant. I don't think that would be a good business That's strategy. That's what I'm saying. Not but the ones. what I would say is, I think anyone who works for an ad agency will tell you they are in danger of becoming irrelevant. On the programmatic side, stuff is going in house. If you're just making creative side. Creative things. A lot of people can do that. The infrastructure of a large ad agency historically is now only needed, generally, by really, really big marketers. Like if you're Ford, you probably need that whole thing. If you're like giant CPG company, you need pieces, but maybe not the whole thing. If you're just like if you're Allbirds, if you're you Dollar, don't. if you're Allbirds, you don't need it at all. And if you're Dollar Shave, Shave Club, you don't need it at all. So they and I'm I, I'm not. It's so complicated what's going on there, and the holding companies own so many different things. It's it's hard to say, but this has to change, um, or it's just they're just going to get like disintermediated. But I don't think it's controversial to say that. I think saying they're irrelevant is like an overblown headline grabbing thing. That's like something that like one of those like knuckleheads that goes and speaks at every conference that doesn't have a real job and calls himself an influencer would say, they're irrelevant. They're not irrelevant because they control a shit ton of money that we get from them. They're extremely relevant, but they got problems in their model and they got problems in the future. I am more dependent on that agencies and will give therefore an even more uh, <laughs> diplomatic answer. Right. Um, I think that in 10 or 12 years, there will be no, that publishers and ad agencies will be one in the same. There will be consolidation within and without. They will be merged together, and this question will go away because I think that the Voxes and Buzzfeeds <clears throat> and Bustles and Refiners of the world and the ad agencies will have either merged or moved in the same swim lane. They will be one in the same thing, and in 12 years, people will go to publisher brands and work with them on constructing brand messaging. And I, th I think that we're creative. You know, part of our part of our value proposition at Bustles, we have 250 employees, most of whom are young women with de creative degrees who really understand the audience they're speaking to and can be very helpful to brands when they're not creating original editorial content. That's compelling. Um, and I think that that story is the truth. I think that is where things are going. So I think in 10 or 12 years, the WPPs and the Refinery29s and the BuzzFeeds and the, and the Universal McGann's will be all the same thing. Same thing. Uh, advertisers talk a big game on brand safety, but will never back it up by pulling ad dollars from platforms. To some extent, yes. However, I, I don't think the brand safety thing is a bluff. I'll put it that way. I think they're very serious about it. I think that the platforms have done themselves no favors by ignoring it. And I think that the YouTubes and the Facebooks of the world are sort of shrugging and rolling their eyes a little bit when brand safety gets brought up. And I think that is a mistake they're making. Is it a suicidal mistake that will cost them everything? No. I think that ultimately Facebook and YouTube are powerful enough and large enough where advertisers will have no choice but to go to them. But I think they have created needless damage. I think that they have... Um, Silicon Valley has shaped their perspective in a negative way in terms of not caring about these quote unquote softer things. And I think that it is slowing them down and it is going to only help uh, publishers stay 
a big part of the ecosystem. I um, agree, and I'll take it a step further. I think the DNA of companies, of, of what made companies like Facebook and Google great companies, is this idea that they're like this platform and technology can solve all problems. And, like, and they can write an algorithm that'll stop this, or they're going to be a platform for everyone to use. And in real life, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. And, and if you sell cookies, or you sell cars, or you sell accounting services, your brand is totally, you're not saying that. You're not run by an algorithm. You're run by humans that have to make emotional human decisions. And you're not going to want to be victim of some weird algorithm and have it explained to you incredibly, incredibly arrogantly that our algorithm gets 99.9% .9 of the beheadings off of our platform. <laughs> we were next to the one-tenth of 1% with our cookies. This is bad. And you see this, guys pull ads, they come back, they pull ads, they come back. It's usually like some CMO that wants to speak at Can Lions doing it. Like, I don't believe it's a long-term solution to the problem. I do believe these guys have to change what they're doing. Okay. Uh, we're going to do a quick fire round. This, it has to be like 30 seconds. Like, literally, seconds. this is like word association. Okay. All right, we're going to start with Brian. Twitter video, period. <laughs> it exists. <laughs> Neil. Amazon advertising, period. Watch out. Okay. GDPR, period. Europe. <laughs> Brand safety, we're going back. Happening. Vice will IPO. Vice will sell to somebody. <laughs> Donut. NBCU will buy BuzzFeed. No opinion. <laughs> if, the, if they get the right price, at the right price, anything can happen. Okay. At the right price, everything gets bought. Okay, we will leave it there. I want to thank Brian and Neil. It's been a great uh, And thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, and I hope you did, please subscribe. And also leave us a comment, by the way. I really like those. Um, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thank you.